0: Hello, God bless you, and good evening. Grateful to have you here with us in the building as well as online. And so we are going to get right into the Word of God, but we're going to say a word of prayer. I see a prayer request here from Brother Michael, so we are going to do that. We're going to pray for Sister Shalonda right now. And, of course, anyone else that we may know that needs uh, help, we're going to be praying for them as well. So let's uh, bow our heads and right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, praise you, love you, honor you, and appreciate you. Thank you for all that you are and all that you mean. God, we ask that you would look on uh, this study. But we ask that you also look on some of the requests we have before you. God, we ask that you would bless Sister Landa, touch her body and uh, keep her uh, safe and well, and encourage her and strengthen her, God. We ask that you would also look on uh Kevin's dad, Jr., that you would touch him, touch his body, keep him strong and blessed, and uh, the various other requests that we have before you that people may not have expressed yet, but you know their need. God, we ask that you would look on them, touch them. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your miracle-working power in our lives, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's always good to uh, pray. That reminds me to remember our newsletter prayer. Uh, if you go to the newsletter and to the toward the bottom where there is a prayer that's a lengthy prayer but it's something that you can pray and it will be a blessing to the body of Christ here at Deliverance Temple as well as yourself as well as the people that you may be concerned about because it covers a lot of areas. And so if you need something to pray, I encourage you to pray that. All right, well, let's get ourselves ready to go into the Word of God, let me transition us over here. So last Sunday, we talked about this. We talked about face it, what it means to face it. And so that was our focus and what we were dealing with. And so When I think about the previous week, we talked about preparation, being prepared, and it was one of those kind of whoop-you messages a little bit. And a lot of people uh, took it well because they were like it was just the truth. And sometimes the truth is like that. You just sometimes have to face it. And so this message follows a similar path, but it gives us several things that we kind of have to just face and deal with. So the first thing we did was we looked at it as a definition. We define it as we normally do. So face in the noun is the front part of a person's head from the forehead to the chin. And so it's the actual face. And uh, even though that is not the major definition that we're looking at, I like bringing that up because number one, it's the basic. When you think of face, it's the first thing you think of but also reminds you of a leaning in, of actually pointing your face toward things. And so when we talk about face it, we're talking about the opposite of running away from something, but actually leaning into something and actually facing it, looking it in its face, uh, looking yourself in the mirror, dealing with the honest things. And so that face, the idea of the face is important because it's putting your face right there. And I didn't use this term on Sunday, but... As I was preparing the message, I just thought about this leaning into things, really leaning in, putting your face in it, so to speak. All right, so let's give the other definition that's more uh, in line with what we're talking about today, and that is the verb form, which is to confront and deal with or accept a difficult or unpleasant task, fact, or situation. So confronting things head-on, dealing with things, accepting things. When they're difficult, they're unpleasant, Uh, the task, the fact, the situation. And what I'd like to think is that the pandemic taught us or should have taught us how important it is to deal with things because sometimes life can throw you curves. And if you are not really willing and ready to face things, then you can cause more trouble than is necessary. And when I think about that, it reminds me of, it kind of reminds me of people in the initial stages that were like, really the initial stages of denial. Oh, this is just, this ain't nothing different than the flu. I ain't wearing no mask. This is just hype. Well, that caused some trouble because it ended up being true that it was a real thing. Not to say that there wasn't some hype and some some hyperbole to it, but it would have been much better if people just faced it and said, okay, well, look, I don't know really know what's going on, but the least thing I'm going to do, I'm about to throw a mask on and I'm going to move through just in case. So there are some things you just can't skirt around. You just kind of deal with it on the terms that they give you. And even if you didn't totally agree with it, in order to interact with society, you kind of had to. All right. You got to do six feet. You can't come in and sit down at the restaurant. You got to go pick up your food. It changed a lot. And we may not have liked it, but the people who were able to just deal with it, accept it, adjust. Those people are the people that ended up flourishing in it. All right. So let's move on and let's give us this idea. And it's something the Lord spoke to me and it is avoidance is not deliverance. So I tell a story about how coming out of college and being in a space of, uh, you know, feeling revitalized, I would say. Uh, I kind of rededicated my life to the Lord, so I, I was feeling strong in my faith. And I was looking at the things that God had delivered me from or the things I were no longer struggling with. There were a few things that I still struggle with, but there were a lot of things that I felt a lot of deliverance in. And one of them was when it came to alcohol. And so as it related to alcohol, I didn't have a taste for it, didn't have a desire for it. And so my default was, wow, God delivered me from it. Until one particular day being in Applebee's and happened to just glance over at the bar just by the way I was sitting and where the waiter or waitress at the time was coming from, I had to look in the direction of the bar. And for whatever reason, that day, it seemed like all that alcohol was talking to me. I wasn't even necessarily having a bad day or stressful day, but all of a sudden there was such a strong desire to have something to drink. And I hadn't drank in eight, nine, maybe 10 months. It had been a while. I hadn't been a year sober, but it had been a while since I had tasted anything. And there was just this overwhelming desire to want it. It was like it was calling me, talking to me. And it wasn't a temptation to order it. It was just like it was speaking to me. It's like, you need this. It's like, I wanted to run and just grab the bottles, not order it. I just wanted to grab the bottles and just go over there and just start drinking stuff. It was just so strong, and it threw me for a loop. And I was like, wow, I thought I was delivered from that. And then that's when God spoke this phrase to me that I have held on to, avoidance is not deliverance. Now, sometimes in order to get to deliverance, you need avoidance. Sometimes you have to avoid things to get to deliverance. So I'm not saying avoidance is wrong, but it's not the fullness. You don't know how delivered you are until you can actually face something and it no longer has control over you. That's when you know you've reached deliverance. If you're not at the place of deliverance, it's okay to avoid some things. But in this context of what we're talking about, we're talking about things that you can't avoid. I could avoid alcohol until I got delivered. But we're talking about things that you can't avoid because when you avoid them, they cripple you. So, since we are deliverance temple and we need deliverance, we can't have avoidance. We're going to have to face some things head on. And so in order to talk about that, we discuss four areas to face, four distinct areas to face. And we are spelling the word face out by using these four things. Now, uh, there's several other things that we can go with, but these are the things that God had, uh, spoken to me because, uh, these are the things that jumped out. And there, there are things that, that I would say can cripple us if we don't really face them, deal with them. If we try to avoid them, it's not going to work. we got to really press in, lean into these things. All right, so starting off, number one, you have to face your fears. Face your fears. So what we did was we would present the very first thing, these points, We present the letter F, which is fears, so face your fears. Then we gave you a quote, a quote from a famous person, then scriptures, and then I followed it up with a quote from myself. So let's look at the quote from a famous person, which is Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it says, Do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. Do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. So what this is saying is, If you do the thing you are afraid of, then what you do, you pull the plug of life support on the fear of it. As you face it, as you confront it, as you deal with it, it has less power over you, less power to control you. And fear, and we're not talking about healthy fear. There's a healthy fear. There there even is a righteous fear. We talk about the fear of the Lord which is a righteous, reverent respect. And even a healthy fear is a respect. So some people say, I have a fear of heights. And so you respect it enough that if you're on a high balcony, you're not hanging over the edge because you respect it. Uh, if you're driving uh, in a car on the highway, you don't take your seatbelt off and drive 130 miles an hour because you respect the fact that things can go out of hand. So we're not talking about healthy, reverent respect of something. If you can't swim, you don't play around the deep end. That that's okay. Like you you are I'm afraid of snakes, so I don't play around with snakes. Don't do that. I'm not gonna have a pet snake. I have a healthy fear. But then there's a the difference with an unhealthy fear. Remember we come out of a healthy church, so this uh, really works with us. So the unhealthy level of fear is fear that paralyzes you, that leaves you in paralysis, that you can't move and you can't do things because you're so afraid, you're so terrified. And we're not talking about doing hard things. There are some things that are hard to deal with, like some time when, when your parents get older, you have a fear, you're afraid of losing them. That's somewhat healthy. Not or, or, It's healthy as long as you, you handle it right. It's unhealthy when you're paralyzed. Well, mom and dad, you, you, y'all can't go outside. You can't go here. You can't go there because I'm afraid of you dying. No, you can't stop them from living their life, but it's okay to have a little healthiness there. But we're talking about when normal things become paralyzing. I can't sleep with the light off ever. Maybe from time to time, I'm in a situation where I feel like I need to, I need the light on. It just gives me an extra level of comfort. Uh, need the TV on. It gives me an extra level of comfort as I sleep. But you're in a space where you don't have that. And now you fear going to sleep. You're staying up all night because you're basically, you're afraid of the dark. That is unhealthy because now it's paralysis. Now It paralyzes you from doing what you need to do. No, I don't necessarily like sleeping in the dark, but I got to get rest. I got to go to work in the morning. So I can't stay up all night being afraid. I got to go to bed. And so now I need to face it. What is causing me not to be able to move past this? What is paralyzing me? So I'm going to have to face it. Things like that. You're going to need scriptures on fear. Things that help you address it and face it. Get to the root issue of it so that you can get past it, so you're not paralyzed in it. I know people who want to do a lot of things as far as travel, but they are afraid to fly. They're just terrified of flying. No matter how many times the plane goes up and comes down and lands safely, they're so paralyzed on it that it stops them from their dreams. Well, I want to go to Paris, but I'm afraid to fly. So because of that, I'll never go to Paris. So now your dream has to die because your fear is so alive. And if you don't face it, that paralysis will set in and it'll cause you to be unhealthy because what it'll do, it'll stop your momentum. One scripture says that he who feareth is not made perfect in love. It says fear has torment. And we are a church of love. And so if you're paralyzed in fear, you really are missing the whole point of my ministry. My ministry is to get us to move, to progress, It's to build a state-of-the-art ministry in the hood. And uh, that's physically, but mentally and spiritually is we're making sure that we are state-of-the-art people. Even though the outside may say you can't achieve this, you can't have this, you can't do that. We are building state-of-the-art, we are growing, we are advancing. We are going beyond the limitations, beyond the obstacles. And if you allow fear to keep you stuck on a level, you are misrepresenting my whole ministry, the faith of my ministry, the hope that I preach. Of all the things that we faced and dealt with, we could stick our heads in the sand and give up. But I get up every Sunday to preach and how we should move forward, how we are yet hoping, yet believing. And if you allow fear to paralyze you, then you really are not getting the fullness of what Deliverance Temple has to offer and the ministry that God is bringing through me. So let's go to Scripture. Isaiah 35.3 says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. What I like about this is it doesn't deny the weakness. It doesn't deny the feebleness. But it says that it can be strengthened. It can be made firm. There's something that can be done with it. It can be dealt with. And then it says, say to those who have an anxious heart, I really, really appreciate that because it's not denying anxiety. Anxiety is real and denying that you're anxious or the things that make you anxious is not healthy either. But what it does say on top of that, it doesn't deny it, but it says deal with it. So we're, we're saying face it, don't deny it, face it. Don't deny it. Deal with it. Look at it. Lean into it. So say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So the salvation message is not just salvation from sin, deliverance from sin or deliverance from hell and entrance into heaven. No, the salvation message is much deeper than that. It's rescue in whatever area you need rescue or deliverance in. So if you're anxious, the hope is God is coming to rescue you. So lean into that. Face what is trying to hold you in bondage so that you can grow beyond that because you know help is on the way. God will not leave me in a state that I cannot function in. I may be momentarily, temporarily paralyzed by grief, by fear, by loss, by debt, by sickness, but this is not my ultimate destination, so I'm leaning in, and what the devil tells me, I'm not allowing it to increase my anxiety. I may be anxious right now, but the goal is that at some point, I'm not going to be anxious because I'm safe in his arms, safe in the arms of the master. And I'm leaning in, believing and trusting and hoping that God is going to bring me out and I'm going to have a testimony because of it. That should be our focus instead of us shrinking back and hiding and avoiding and trying not to address things, trying not to deal with things. We'll never find our deliverance operating like that. All right. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So one of the problems with fear, is actually traps you. Not the reverential healthy fear, but the fear of man. The fear of what other people would think. The, the people-pleasing mentality. the What people will laugh at me. If I do this and I fail, they'll laugh about me. They'll talk about me. Do you care more about man than you care about God? Do you care more about man than you care about the safety in God? So now you're paralyzed and won't move because you're so afraid. What I like about Peter is his boldness. Even in his boldness, he failed. But when we look at him walking on water, he achieved something no other men were able to do. He achieved it. He stepped out of the boat when the other ones wouldn't step out of the boat. And yes, he sank, but when he sank, he was closer to Jesus than anyone else. And Jesus was able to reach out and pull him up, reach out and lift him up. So the question is, will you allow man to keep you from stepping out, launching out, or will you just face it and go? Peter said, if it's you, bid me to come, tell me to come, and I'll come. And he did, and it didn't work. But then again, it did. I mean, he was actually walking on water. Then he fell. And then Jesus rescued him. And it talks about them going back to the boat. It doesn't say Jesus carried him. So maybe you will fall in the process. But that's all a part of it. You've got to get out. You've got to step out. That's a part of the faith. All right. Here's another one. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So if you have a spirit of fear that's paralyzing you and debilitating you, you have to know that didn't come from God. It came from somewhere else. And also you need to know it's a spirit. It's a demonic spirit. And so you have to be careful being comfortable with certain fears because actually you're being comfortable with demons. And here's the thing that I added. You'll never kill a fear that you consistently coddle. If you always coddle it, always make exceptions for it, always try to get out of things to protect your fear, the fear will never die. Not only will it not die, and I didn't say the Sunday, but it will grow. It will be given life, and you will be the one who's watering it by your actions. So you're going to have to face it. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to face everything. But one of the things that this message is not talking about, you don't have to face everything at the same time. Sometimes you just got to start small, take baby steps, deal with little things, and little victories create momentum. Little victories create moments. The moments create momentum, and then you continue to go. Now, we're dealing with uh, Peter, and when we get to later in his life, We see that when 3,000 souls were saved, he was the one who stood up and preached the sermon on Pentecost Day. He was the one, yes, fearful, uh, messing up, cutting ear off Peter, who would just would not stop, who just kept going and kept being bold, even though it didn't always work out. We see where it got him on. The other hand, we hear someone like a Doubting Thomas, and we don't really hear much about what happened in his life. And so what do you want to be? Do you want to be what do you want to be remembered for? Do you want to be remembered for the fear that you called or do you want to be remembered for the fear that you killed? All right. So let's move right along. Face your anger. Face your anger. So you have to face your fear. You have to face your anger, and anger is different. Sometimes fear comes from timidity. Sometimes your anger comes from so many sources. Sometimes you're not timid. Sometimes you are uh, fearless and bold, but because of that, you become a little brash, a little angry, a little hot-tempered, a little ill-tempered. Sometimes It's because of all the things that you fear. Well, I fear being hurt, so now I cut people off. Now I'm mean. So if you're going to be healthy, you're going to have to face that. So what does that look like for us? Let's give us a uh, quote, Charles Spurgeon. Anger does a man more hurt than that which made him angry. So when when you think about facing your anger... The reason why you want to face it, because the thing that made you angry and the anger at some point become two separate events. The thing that made you angry, it may be a righteous reason for you to get angry. But what happens is when you stay angry and then the anger takes over and it begins to control you. Now, the one who made you angry has moved on with their life and now you still are festering. You still are dealing with it. You're making a new man seven relationships down the road pay for something the first man did. Because that anger has actually hurt you so much that you're living from it, operating from it. So what you have to do is ultimately you're going to have to face it. So when we look at uh, scripture, let's look at what the scripture says here. It says good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's Proverbs nineteen eleven. I haven't been giving you the actual references, but they're down there at the bottom. So it says good sense makes a person slow to anger. So that means if you're quick to anger, that means you don't have good sense. So it shows a lack of wisdom. So in other words, what Charles Burgeon has said, it actually does you more harm because it affects other areas. It affects your wisdom, affects your sense, affects your decision making. And so anger can have a life of its own and it's going to have to be confronted. It's going to have to be dealt with. And I know what I'm talking about because this was one of the things that I really dealt with and struggled with and had to get a handle on because it was going to ruin aspects of my life. And so I speak from experience when I say these things. So let's look here. It says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Here's the reason why. Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. This is Proverbs 22, 24 through 25. So in in two ways we see that word snare, which is a trap. We see it when it comes to fear. The fear of man is a snare. Now we see it that if you begin to learn the ways of anger, specifically from people, that it actually can be passed on. In other words, you can be mentored in the wrong things. You can be mentored in being angry by watching other people, watching how your parents operated, watching how uh, friends. But if you think that's okay, it's only going to trap you up because, as Charles Spurgeon said, that anger is going to hurt you more than anything. And so you're going to have to face it. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to figure it out. But one of the things that you need to know is the results of anger out of control normally are not good, and normally you suffer most because of it. There are times where the, actually a lot of people suffer, but like, like a person who kills someone out of anger, the person who died suffers, but then they suffer, life in prison, uh, and then their family suffers because now they're gone, they're locked up. Now the family of the person who died suffers, so so much suffers because of it, so it has to be something that you're willing to deal with and uh, be determined to face, all right? Let's look at this verse here. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression, which I just proved to you, much trouble, much issues. And so being focused on always being angry, it has many ramifications. And I didn't point it out uh, yet, but I want to kind of go back to it. I won't go back to the scripture. I'll just reference it. It talked about it's a glory to overlook an offense. If you're so easily offended, and that always triggers your anger, then that becomes an issue that you're going to have to face. And it's true that people can make you angry. People can push your buttons. But you have to ask yourself this question, why do I have so many buttons? Why do I have so many places that can trigger me? And is it true that that's everybody else's fault? Is it a possibility that I could work on my things that cause me to be so triggered, so offended, so easily offended? And unfortunately, when we are highly, highly sensitive, many times it's a form of pride because we are so sensitive and so trying to protect us. We feel like we are so important that everybody else can joke, but don't joke with me cause I'm so delicate, but what makes you so important that you can't take a joke that you're so triggered. Maybe you're bringing other things into something normal. Now we're not talking about bullying. And when you've communicated that this hurts my feelings and a purpose person is purposely doing that, but we're talking about, and I posted on Facebook, we're talking about how, when you allow your insecurities to have you at such a high level of offense, that everything makes you angry. Everything sets you off. You're looking at people disliking them and they genuinely like you. They think you're the catch me out. They think you're amazing. But in your own head, you're offended by them. She thinks she better than me. I can't stand her not knowing that she's crazy about you. He's crazy about you. But you got all this stuff going on and you're going to have to face that because there's a root somewhere that is unhealthy. Now, I mentioned pride, but it could be several things. And so that leads me to the point that I gave or the quote that I made. And the quote that I added was, anger is often a secondary emotion. So you face it to find out what's triggering it. That's why you face it, because it's not always the truth that you were unfairly angered. Sometimes it's truth that you were righteously angry, like you were done wrong. There was a reason to get angry, but why did the anger get out of control? What really happened? Because anger is a secondary emotion. Now, this is something I preached on years ago, but something I was reminded of with uh, talking to my therapist last month. And, the actual emotion of anger, the real emotion of anger, lasts about 90 seconds. So you can be angry and real, and it lasts about 90 seconds. Your, in other words, your heart rate, all the things that happen to your body, it's about a 90-second period of time. After that, your body begins to taper off. But what happens often is our mind picks up the anger and takes it to another level. And that's what happens when your body is over it. But six weeks down the road, you still are angry to the point where you can cause your body to go through that all over again. You can cause that you can trigger that 90 second emotion all the time just by thinking on it, because now the anger and the offense is in your head and you're reliving it. And at some point you got to face it and deal with it, because what happens is you're now building triggers. You're allowing those traumas to build triggers. And if you don't start healing from that, then everything sets you off. And then other people pay for things that they never did to you. Now, your children pay for something the boss did. Your co-workers pay for something your children did. People in church pay for something the church down the street did to you. So now I'm coming to your church because of what happened to me there. And now you're treating us and treating this pastor like your old pastor. And so we have to be very careful and we have to deal with it because if we don't face it, it can cause us a lot of trouble. So let me just say it again in all its goodness anger is often a secondary emotion. So you face it to find out what's triggering it. All right, that leads us to our next point, which is three face change. So we've got to learn how to face change. So You lean into change. Change is often inevitable. Change is often necessary. And so you have to lean into it. You've got to face it. You've got to deal with it. Not all change is good, but some of the changes are unavoidable. And if you try to avoid them, you're going to cause more harm to yourself trying to get out of change, trying to circumvent change. Um, some parents don't understand the natural change from their child being a child to being an adult, and so you keep trying to make them your child, but they're now an adult, and you want to do for them like you've always done for them, and that works when they're five, six, seven, eight, ten, but at thirty two, you sometimes are getting... In God's way and you're blocking the blessing from your for your child because you don't understand change and now you're getting in the way of what he's trying to do and so sometimes there's lessons that they need to learn and you fix the lesson because oh I'm the, their daddy I'm their mama but you don't understand change and the relationship has changed the dynamic has changed and now you're doing more harm than good um, as a pastor as a leader and even in my family, my father struggled with it. And it's something that that I could struggle with, too. Actually, our, our, uh, I always talk about the great things that our founder and uh, my father, so Bishop Clark, and then my dad, now on to me. But one of the things that both of them struggled with was their heart was so big that they could become enablers to the point where I'm trying to help you grow you to the point where I'm actually doing it for you. And that's in my lineage. lineage. That's in my heritage. And I've had to learn how to back up because sometimes things are changing and God doesn't want you to step in. He don't want you to check up on and, and fix people's stuff. Sometimes things have changed and I've had to learn that. And one thing that I've learned is that when you consistently are doing and you're not facing the change correctly, as as an enabler, you consistently are helping, one of the things you'll find out is those people that you're going, breaking your back for, they'll be the most disloyal to you. Because you're trying to do this for them. You're trying to run here, run there. I'll never forget a guy that uh, had come off of drugs. My dad got him in the halfway house that we had and helped him find a job. And the job that he found was at a rest stop. That's just between uh, going north uh, from Muncie to Fort Wayne. You'll see a rest stop that's about 13, 14 miles away. But this guy didn't have a car and accepted this job. So my dad took him every night to the job and picked him up. So my dad's driving 30 miles round trip to help someone with the job, which was good for a while. But this went on for about a year and a half. Finally, we found out later this guy, he ends up quitting his job, going on somewhere and goes to another church and then tells them that his church delivered simple. They didn't do anything for him. They never helped him out. And when the news came back, my dad was heartbroken because everybody knew how much he did, how much he spent. But the truth that I was learning was sometimes you're doing for people who don't really care they don 't appreciate it, and God is trying to get you to change, but you don 't know how to change because you 're so used to doing for them, but once you get stabbed in the back a few times, you start learning the lesson so don 't be like my father in that particular situation where you have to get burnt before you start changing and adjusting sometimes you get people started and you got to let go of the strings and let them start moving let them go so i 'm just giving you a couple of uh, examples of change, there's there's many things that we can do. Sometimes you have to change your spending habits, change all kinds of things. Groceries are a lot higher than they were before. Gas is higher. So maybe that changes what you do. Maybe you don't just go out and joyride like you used to. Maybe you need to have a destination. Maybe you need to not go to the grocery store when you're hungry because you're going to buy up more than you need. You're going to have to change and adjust but if you understand and can face change, you always stay ahead of the game and ahead of the curve. All right, so let's uh, look at the quote. To admire ourselves as we are is to have no wish to change. And with those who don't want to change, the soul is dead. I'm going to read that again. I like that. To admire ourselves as we are is to have no wish to change. Where I don't, oh, I don't need to grow. I don't need to change. I don't need to adjust. I'm so in love with who I am now. And with those who don't want to change, the soul is dead. So in our context, in the Christian context, in the born-again context, our life is all about change. That when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, what must I do to be saved? He told him, you got to be born again. He's like, how can I be born? I'm already born. But what Jesus told me, there has to be a metamorphosis to, to the point where it's actually you're becoming someone brand new. You're born again. Well, we have many rebirths in God where we are being changed. The scripture says we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind, which is metanoia, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. There is a consistent change happening in us, and it's supposed to be a change for a better. It's a shedding of the old, putting on the new. Many animals show us this, the way they shed their their fur, their skin, their scales because they are embracing for something new. They're changing. And we as humans are the same. We have to change in order to grow. And so you have to face it. You have to lean into it. You can't be so scared of it because many times your breakthrough is on the other end of your change. All right. Um, Verse Isaiah 43, 19, which is a very familiar verse says, behold, I am doing a new thing now it springs forth. And here's what I think is important. These five words right here. Do you not perceive it? Question mark, which is a question. I will make a way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. So God was talking about how powerful he could be. I can do a new thing. But his question was, are you even going to be able to perceive it? Will you be able to change with it? I can put rivers in the desert. In other words, I could do miraculous things, but it doesn't benefit you. The new won't benefit you if you don't know how to embrace it, if you don't know how to accept it, if you don't know how to face it, if you don't know how to change with it and adjust with it. So the question is not with me. The question is with you. Will you perceive it? Do you perceive it? Do you pick up on it? In other words, I'm doing a new thing. And let, let's actually go back to the scripture. Behold. I am doing, which means look. I am doing means I'm currently doing something new. Right now, I'm in the process of doing something new. So look at it, can you see it? And then the question comes, do you not perceive it? So not only do I need you to look at it, but do you not perceive it? Don't you feel it? There are some people that change just because they feel it. They don't need a crisis to change. They just get up and say, I'm changing my, my room around, changing my wardrobe. I'm I'm changing what I normally eat. I'm not eating chicken again today. This is the fourth day in a row that I didn't eat chicken. I'm eating something different. Why? Chicken is fine. Yes, it's fine. But I perceive, I feel a shift. I feel I need to shift. I need to change. I need to adjust. And many times, just like what we talked about with the fear, it's sometimes in the small things that gets you ready to have your perception up for the major changes. It's hard to make major changes if you've never made little changes, little adjustments, knowing when to change, when to adjust. It's time for a new house. And I may not be ready to afford a new house, so I'm gonna start looking at new houses, but I'm also gonna start sprucing up the house that I have because I may need to sell this to get to that. So I'm putting a fresh coat of paint, I'm changing the carpet. I'm adjusting. I'm changing. I'm making small steps for something major. I am practicing where I want to be. And in life, as well as in God, many times you practice to make perfect for where you're headed. All right. So, let's add this uh, quote from me. Running from change will have the old holding on to you and the new running away from you. So, Many times people complain that new opportunities never come to them, but it's the way that they perceive things; it's how they deal with change, and it makes the old hold on to them. In other words, many people are in bondage to the old; they are in bondage to yesteryear; they are in bondage to old thinking. The interruption to many moves of God. Great moves of God is not the new move of God. It's the old move of God. It's God did it this way then, so I can't see him doing it this new way now. And many times it was right. There are a lot of things that the church missed out on because they didn't understand change. We were late to radio, so they, they talked about Radio. Then when television came, there were preachers talking about that one-eyed devil in your home that's telling you the vision. But then there are other preachers who are like, no, we actually should get on television, and we should actually tell our vision as well. And we were late for television. Social media, we were not as late as we were on those other mediums. Now this new technology comes. Will we be late, or will we grab it and be the forefront? Even with technology, we still were behind. Pornography jumped on it and took, took it exponentially while the church was late. There are some churches that did not get on social media until the pandemic, until they were forced to. We got to be quicker than that. We have to change. We need to be ahead. There's an old uh, saying or an old uh, statistic that says that the world at large changes every four years. But church world changes every 20 years, which means oftentimes we are so far behind the curve and we wonder why we lose whole generations and generations don't want to relate to the church. It's because we're so far behind. You have new people coming in with their phone and you have ushers saying, put your phone away. What are you doing? Turn that off. But this is how I interact. This is what I grew up on. I I was watching Baby Shark at three months old on this phone and now I've come to church and I can't use my phone. We have to change, adjust, and uh, if we face it in the small things, we'll be able to handle it in major things. All right, our last one here is face the enemy. We got to know how to face the enemy. So, what does that look like to you? And in in many cases, the other things that we've talked about heck, could be your enemy. Fear could be your enemy. The the uh, anger could be your enemy. The resistance to change could be your enemy. But in a larger scope is just the sp- supernatural spiritual warfare that we face, the demons, the powers, all of that. What are we going to do? How do we handle that? And so in order to look at that, I wanted to go, to this uh, quote here. It says, do not think that because you have fled from the fight, you have escaped from the hands of the enemy. The adversary overtakes you with more pleasure when flying than he resists you when combating and strikes more boldly at your back than he attacks face to face. This is Barden, Bernard of Clairvaux. That's so deep. I just want to, I want to read it again. So, do not think that because you have fled from the fight, you have escaped from the hands of the enemy because you've avoided something. The adversary overtakes you with more pleasure or he gets happier when flying, when you're running away or fleeing, than he resists you when combating and strikes more boldly at your back than he attacks face to face. When it comes to spiritual things, here's the reason why. Because the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So if we're fleeing from him, all it does is make him laugh and makes him more bold. So you running away from him does not fix the issue. It actually makes him more emboldened to attack you more, to do more, to throw more at you. Now, sometimes you don't recognize it because the more is not in heightened levels. See, when you're walking for God, and you're facing the devil, the levels get harder and higher. So it seems like it's worse working with God because I'm getting hit harder. But the truth of the matter is you get hit harder when you're fleeing, but what he hits you with is more subtle. What he hits you with is things to keep you stuck. In other words, when you face him, he throws arrows at you. When you run away from him, he throws cement at you because all he wants to do is get you stuck. Because if you're stuck, you can't do anything to his kingdom. So he's not as loud when he attacks you when you're running. He's more subtle because he's trying to lull you to sleep. Ah, oh, You don't need to pray. You don't need to come to church. You don't need to get out of bed it's more subtle. It's not in your face. It's not harsh, but really what he's doing is trapping you up, building bondage for you. And then you can't move. You can't do anything. Then when it's time to pray, you got to have somebody else pray for you. We all need other people to pray for us, but there come certain seasons in our life where we have to be able to pray for ourselves. And when you can't pray for yourself, when Jesus went to the garden of Gethsemane, he took his disciples with him. He took his close group with him and he wanted them to pray with him and they fell asleep on him. And he came out and he's like, Don't you care that, that, uh, and you know, I, 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 don't you care what I'm going through? And they fell asleep on him again. And he realized, Okay, I'm not gonna be able to trust them. I'm gonna have to do this on my own. Well, when you are lulled to sleep by running from the enemy, he gets you so trapped that when other people can't pray for you, you can't pray for you either. You're stuck. You don't know anything. So just because the intensity doesn't seem as hard when you're running doesn't mean you're winning. You're actually getting trapped and trapped into more darkness. All right, having said that, let's look at this uh, familiar passage. This is David and Goliath, and I, just, I didn't want to go the whole thing, but I just like how he focused. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, meaning Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. There's that fear again, but it says all the men at first. And David said, which is a difference. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. David had a total different mindset. His question was, what happens for the person who wins? He was already thinking of Goliath being defeated. Everyone else was afraid of him because how big he was, how strong he was, all the insults that he hurled. They were all in fear and they were all fleeing from him. And David had one question. What happens when you win? He's already thinking of, well, shoot, I can face him. And then you can tell by what he calls him. So he says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defy the armies of the living God? And here's what David is saying, uh, basically what David is saying. David is saying, I got God on my side, and he don't. He might be big, but he don't have a covenant with God. So why would I fear him? And he don't have what I have. So who is he? What's so special about him? And we have to be able to look at our enemy and say the same thing. What's so special about this grief? Yeah, I I understand grief has a process. But what makes you think you're going to stay longer than what you're supposed to? Today is actually the day two years ago that we buried my father. And I'm not somewhere crying in the sand. I'm doing what I believe God wants me to do. Because grief, while it has a place, it will not paralyze me because I'm looking at it in its face and I'm saying, I know what my father would want from me. He would want me to carry the ministry on. So grief, you can come and you can go, but you cannot cripple me. I'll look you in your face because you don't have God backing you the way I have God backing me. So I'm not afraid of you and I'm willing to face you and I'm willing to walk through whatever season that may come in it and I'm believing that in the end, I'm going to win. That's the bottom line. That's the attitude David had facing the giant. What happens when you face your giant? Now, when the children of Israel, the the, uh, spies, when they saw the giants, they got scared. Two of them said, no, we can, this land belongs to us. We can take this. We can go. Ten of them, the Bible says, came back with an evil report. They said, the giants make us look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. In other words, From their perspective, they had already lost. But Caleb and Joshua was like, man, we can win. They got outvoted. Well, I'm tired of getting outvoted by people who don't want to face the enemy. I want a group of people who will face the enemy and say, we can win. We are well able and we will win. And number one, we've taken too many losses not to win. If we've taken this many losses and we're still in the battle, that means we still have a chance to win and victory is still certain for us. So I don't want to quit now because I want to see the end result. I want to get to the end of this and I want to stand as a champion, as a victor. So I'm not crying and running and and uh, being scared now. No, I'm going for and try to stop me if you dare, because I know who's on my side. All right, so let's look at this verse here. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Hey, I got you. I'm your man. I'm going. Let's not be scared of him. I know somebody who can do it, and it's me. When are you going to bet on you and face the enemy and say, nah, nah buck stops here. I'm, I'm winning this round. I'm going to win this battle. I got God on my side, and I'm overcoming I'm coming out of debt. My marriage is going to work. My children are going to be okay. It's, it's going to happen. I, I know I may have lost in the past, but I'm not quitting. I'm going to win some way, somehow. I have a winner's mentality. I have a champion's mentality. Rudy Tomjanovich, who was the coach of the Houston Rockets, when they won, they won back-to-back in '94 and 1994 and 1995. And one of his statements was, never underestimate the heart of a champion because when they started the season and even when they started the playoffs they didn't start off looking like champions they were looking like losers but there was something in them that wouldn't let them quit and wouldn't let them stop and they end up at the end holding the champion's crown and he said never underestimate the heart of a champion and i want to say the same thing to you never underestimate the heart of a champion face the enemy Because there's a champion that lives on the inside of you. Here's my quote that I added to it. Winners run into battle, but cowards run away. Don't be a coward. And I added that I hope in this ministry I'm raising, not cowards, that I'm not raising cowards, but I'll add this for Bible study. I hope I'm raising champions. Somebody type that in the comment, champions over cowards. I'm raising champions, not cowards. We've been through too much to be cowards now. Let's go and let's win. Let's be champions. How are we going to be champions? We're going to be champions by facing it. All right. So here putting it all together, fear, anger, change, enemy whatever that enemy may be, face it, face it, face it. Look it in the face and face it, lean into it, overcome it. Sometimes when you're leaning into things, you don't overcome it right away. But if you're willing to face it, God will bring people alongside of you. And that's what, hopefully that's what this church is about that there's some stuff that when you face it, all it does, is breaks you down, but you don't have to face it alone. We face it together. And so if you got something that you're staring at and that's staring back at you and it won't move, just know you're going to face it with your pastor. You're going to face it with the pastor's wife. You're going to face it with the staff, with the members. We're facing it with the body of Christ. We are not alone. We're going to win and we're going to win together because we're standing together and we're facing it all together. All right, having said that, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, and we appreciate you. You are the great God, and we appreciate you. There's things we got to face, but we're not scared. We're going to face it, and God, you help us win so that we'll have a testimony that everything that we faced, we came out through it as pure gold. And we thank you for it in Jesus name. Amen. And amen. God bless you. Love you dearly. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. We have those in the building, those online, and we have even have a cricket in the building that's enjoying Bible study, too. So God bless you. Have a great evening. Signing off.